Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Surf Stories, the podcast brought to you by the Florida Surf Film Festival and Surfing's Evolution and Preservation Foundation. With additional support from Monster Energy, Yeti, Rourke, Globe, Wagner the Lawyer Dude, Atlantic Center for the Arts, Sunbum, and Anson Stoner. That's a great list right there. It is. I'm your host, John Brooks, and with me as always is co-host Kevin Miller. Hey, how you doing? Doing Just good. How about yourself? Happy to be here. Um, we, we had a great festival this last weekend. It started off with uh, a nice dinner with... Uh, you know, John Philbin, who played Turtle on North Shore uh, from 1987, and Gregory Harrison, who played the Chandler character, the older, wiser yeah. shaper who was going to coach um, indirectly um, Rick Kane to a basically a second place at Pipe Masters if it, were, if it weren't for Lance Burkhart. Yeah. So what a story. Uh, they gave us so many small details from that whole experience. Yeah, it was phenomenal. I had no idea Gregory Harrison was the second a second unit AD, second unit assistant director on the film because the the first unit or the first director got seasick, so he couldn't shoot any of the water scenes. Yeah, he ended up yeah because he's such a like he's a real surfer. He actually grew up surfing, grew up in Avalon. You'll hear a lot about that in this podcast out there in the Channel Islands. Um, uh, yeah, so it's it's just one thing after another with Gregory. I I think the uh, the stories never really stopped from no, and and they for for everybody who wasn't around Gregory the whole time. I mean, it was just we we didn't like get tired of it. No, it, it kept coming, but it was like one after the other of pure gold. Yeah, yeah. He's so eloquent. He's very well spoken, and he's just a natural born storyteller. He is. You don't have to cajole him to get into the podcast. Like it, you know, nah. it, it was like effortless for us. Yeah. Yeah, and, and clearly know. effortless for him. Um, if yeah. it's not, then and he is a damn fine he, actor, he's which he is. <laughs> he's worked hard at it. I, I just feel the, uh, you know, an undateable John screening, which was a movie shot in 2019, um, written by Sin Posner and, and produced by Sin Posner, directed by Damien Lichtenstein, um, starring John Philbin and Estella Warren, was a huge success. Uh, it was our world it was the world premiere big screen premiere of that movie and yeah. uh john was so nervous that people <laughs> he were like was it. he was and then he was so excited because gregory actually watched the film and really enjoyed it and yeah. it was so fun to like see the interaction between two legitimate hollywood actors mm -hmm. and and to realize like n no matter how much you've quote made it like you right. still care what somebody else thinks well yeah it's natural I yeah. would I would uh, be hard pressed to put that movie up there and just walk around like I don't give a damn. I I would absolutely be pacing 
Yeah. And I think he was a little was. bit at first. And then <laughs> at the end, you could tell he was just relieved because the movie created so many happy you know, moments, laughs and all that. Everybody was. So if you haven't seen that movie, you can find it on Apple Movies. You can find it on Amazon. Um, it's just uh, a really, you know, it's rated R. So watch out in front of your kids. But it's got so many laughs in it. And it's right up our surfer alley. You yeah. Kind of yeah. makes sense to show it. It's a it's a great film. And, and I, I mean, speaking of that, I actually care what Gregory Harrison thinks about me. And yeah. he, he said he liked us. He said that we, we did a great <laughs> yeah. job and he was very complimentary. So I'm, I'm putting that, I'm taking that to the bank. Absolutely. I would say, uh, it was a overall success this weekend and meeting those guys was a big hit for me. So a- Greg, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Gregory, thanks for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. Yeah. Enjoy some fantastic stories from Gregory Harrison. Take us in, Johnny. Thrilled to have Gregory Harrison with us today. And, uh, man, we had a really fun screening last night of North Shore. Um, I got to imagine those those probably don't get old, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they don't get old. No, they're, they're really, I mean, I, I tried to say it after the screening when we were doing the Q&A last night that, you know, it's so rewarding to me to, to have been a surfer for 20 years before I shot the film. Yeah. And to have cared so much like I did growing up that surfers were looked down on and considered bums and, and you know, delegitimized at every turn back in the 60s and 70s and 80s when I was first starting. Yeah. And, and my, my goal in life during those times when I was such an avid surfer, cared more about it than anything, was to try and legitimize it, to try and, and turn that perception around you know that surfers are maybe they're addicts but they're you know they're addicted to the adrenaline and addicted to the lifestyle but they also can be contributing members of society yeah and and be passionate about other things and be good family men and be be you know first class citizens yeah at the same time that they're devoted you know to this pastime that that they worship yeah, that's interesting too because there was during that time period it seemed like there was quite a few guys that were more than happy to embrace the um, illegitimate side mm-hmm. and kind of run with it. Dora, you know, yeah, right? Um, maybe, maybe that's just who he was. I think he may have contributed more than anything <laughs> yeah, to that for, image for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, guys seemed to kind of take it and run with it, and surfing as a whole in that time period seemed to gravitate towards and almost to kind of enjoy that. Um, perception from but the general it, public. It was also perpetuated by people who didn't really know anything about surfing. You know, uh, Beach Blanket Bingo and Ride the Wild Surf and yeah. all those films that, even Gidget, you know, Moondoggy and all those characters were, were not particularly, uh, you know, they were bums, basically. Yeah. You know, they were they were likable bums. Yeah. And uh, and that, that, I don't think that was, I don't think that was ever actually an accurate reflection of who surfers are there were some sure um but of course but there's those in every pastime in life i've known skiers and mountain climbers and you know i was just gonna say motorcyclists and i mean you you know find something that's adrenaline fueled and you'll have a lot of people who just do that and live for it and they don't they don't they don't care to contribute to society or anything They, they just care about 
getting another fix. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ski bum doesn't sound quite so bad usually. Right. Usually it's like a, it's a, it's not a derogatory term as much as it's like a term of envy. Yeah. (laughs) So to get back to your original (laughs) question about last night was, you know, it's always so much fun to watch a movie like that and see people passing it on to the next generation. People bring their sons, their grandchildren, um, and they're all learning the dialogue again, and yeah. they're all finding that heart of the film, you know, that part of the movie. I recognized it last night again. Whenever I watch one of these screenings, and we, you know, in the last 10 years, we did a 30th and a 35th, and now I think it's like 37 or 38 years since we made it. Every time I sit through one of these with an audience, with an adoring audience like that, I'm, I'm evaluating with, a di- you know, with an older and slightly different perspective the, the movie sure. and why does it work and why has it list, lived this long and why has it become so iconic and last night I kind of re- I, 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 uh, I realized that that the real heart of the film there's a lot of fun things in it and everybody contributed but the real heart of the film the part that captures the essence of surfing which is what I love about having been a part of it is when Rick is, when Rick uh, uh, and Turtle connect with Chandler, and Rick, and when Rick first comes to Chandler's uh, shaping shed, and and then that whole next twenty or thirty minutes of watching how Chandler lives, and and the the sort of calm, soulful beauty of his Hawaiian family and his kids and his, his humbleness and Turtle's uh, uh, devotion to Chandler's craft and then Chandler, uh, you know, working the rails and explaining to Rick about how important every little nuance of shaping is yeah. and then sitting on the rock and talking about the surf. We're surfing. No, we're not. We're sitting on a rock. No, we're surfing. Yeah. I mean, how many waves have you mind surfed in your life? You know, <laughs> yeah, and and that is surfing. That's part of it's the it's the part that only surfers know that that surfing is the anticipation, the prediction, the 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 calculation on the beach, the observation of currents and sets and periods between waves <coughs> and. And, you know, now, of course, you got to add in all the, the charts and, and, and all of that on Surfline, which changes the, the equation quite a bit from when I grew up. Sure. I mean, we, we, would, we were guessing most of the time. And until you came over that hilltop and saw what was out there, you never knew for sure. And that anticipation as you were approaching the top of the hill and you're going to get your first glimpse of the coastline. I mean, that's, that's juice, man. I'd live on that. I lived on that for 25 years yeah. before Surfline ever existed. Yeah. It was, it's, it's like such a part of surfing for me. And then sitting out on the, on the, on the, uh, outside the, the, you know, the, the lineup and staring at the horizon as the sun is setting and hoping to get that one last set wave. Just yeah. hoping before it gets totally black out. Can I get that one? I don't want to paddle in. I don't want to right. ride a. I don't want to ride a little knee knocker in. I, I want to catch one more. Please send yeah. me one more. <laughs> that all that stuff. That's that's surfing to me. Yeah. yeah. And this movie captured that in the middle. In the middle part of the movie, it really captures it. And I think that's 
because the silliness of the of the wave pool and of his trip to Honolulu and going to a bar with a with a you know a, a, a hooker uh, you know who <laughs> surfboard in his hand uh, under a surfboard <laughs> I mean all of that's kind of you going ah, I, don't know. I don't know that's kind of silly I don't know, I don't know. How, how how dumb is this guy yeah but then you get to that part out there once once he even even the party where he meets Chandler and 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 Burkhart and all that that's all still silly stuff yeah. you know it's entertaining but it's just kind of silly but then you the heart of it is when turtle takes him to the to the shop and to the shed and and he meets Chandler and it's like it gets serious and it gets it gets soulful you yeah. know and i really realized that last night as i'm watching it and that made me feel really good cuz that's what i saw when we were when i read the script and yeah. when we were making it, you know, you, you, you can't, you lose sight of all those things in the process of making it because you're doing it out of sequence and you're just hoping you're, you know, you make these little mental kind of incremental marks in your head about what this scene is going to be like leading into that scene and I'm coming from that scene and, you know, you're trying to calibrate. It's very hard. That's, what, that's the hardest part of acting. Sure. Well, the hardest part of acting is how not to act, but, but... <laughs> But the, the hardest part of, of, of preparation is to calibrate. Where am I coming from? Where am I going? What's the music of the piece as a whole? What's my instrument that I'm playing? What's my character? What's the sound? Mm. Am I the oboe? Am I the drums? Am I the mm. piccolo? Am I the, 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 the bass guitar? What am I in this piece, yeah. in this orchestra of characters and in this story? And then calculating all that trying to synchronize that with everyone else's calculations and then walking on the set and trying to all be in the same movie with the same musical piece. You know, we're all making the same movie. We're all synchronized. And it, and then it goes through a whole post process that you don't have any control over. Right. Sure. And they could change the whole or try to change the whole movie from what you thought you were shooting. So it's, it's so rewarding when, when everybody seems synchronized from beginning to end. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I can imagine. Well, and, was, and that's just more proof of it when you see an audience like this 38 years, 37 years later. Yeah. I thought it was interesting because when we were watching the movie last night, uh, you during that part, you leaned over and, and said that in a, in a shortened version. You said that to me as we were watching the movie. You're like, this is the part. This is the part that, like, makes the film, like, what it is. And, and I remember, like, watching, and I've watched that film literally over 100 times. And... I remember like really kind of closely analyzing what you were saying and then that section of the film and and I had a little bit of a epiphany for lack of a better term but to me the the thing that that film is about is about friendship and it's something that I've encountered I've been lucky enough to encounter it in my life as a surfer and it's this unspoken bond between surfers especially when you travel you meet surfers from other parts of the world um, you might not even speak the same language, but the fact that you surf and like Turtle's um, devotion to Rick, to a guy he doesn't even know, who by all accounts, you know, comes off in the beginning with all the silly stuff as an absolute kook. And then when Chandler walks in and he's like, who's this guy? And he's like, this is my friend from the mainland. Yeah. And you're like, right. You know, like, and it that, that to me, like that friendship that uh, is created around surfing is so long lasting and so... It's such a connection between people, and I, I really saw that in the film last night, uh, you know, again, having watched it many times before. I don't know if that's peculiar to surfing, though. I mean, I think there are a lot of surfers who are very judgmental of others. Sure. It's, it's, oh, yeah. that's, that's, that's absolutely 
correct about Turtle. Yeah. And that's why Turtle is so lovable because he's a good human being. Right. And he, the, the fact that he, this guy who's become kind of a pain in his butt. Yeah. Um, he introduces to, to the man he respects most in the world as, oh, this is my friend. Yeah. Um, says something. It says a lot. Yeah. It defines that, that what kind of man Turtle is. And it makes you root for him and, and it makes it all the better when, when finally he gets his dream. You know, yeah. when Rick pulls the board out of that cupboard 40 minutes, 50 minutes later in the movie. Yeah. You know, and, and Chandler's going, Turtle, you did this? Yeah. yeah. You know, that makes that moment so fulfilling. Yeah. But also John just is such a brilliant actor. And he, he, he every choice he made in that movie was world class. Spot on. Right. Spot on. Yeah. I, I like the character arc of, and, and this movie doesn't get made without Dahui. I say Dahui, like Dahui, uh, is that they would not have partaken in this movie had the story arc for them as a character sort of thing go from, okay, intimidating, thieving, uh, sort of potential enemy in the movie to a uh, blessing of, you know, from Lopez of Rick's uh, Waimea waves and then onward to the the end of the story where he's water patrol and calling out you know Burkhard for the for the foul you know as the as they come around in the movie it's like the respect for uh the folks who you know as you said a thousand dollars a day would clear the lineup yeah for the movie but also that was see that wasn't overplayed there's so much about the 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 film once once you you're past the first 15 minutes there's so much about that film that is accurate about yeah. the North Shore, mm-hmm. you know, that it was kind of a begrudging respect and it wasn't overdone. It wasn't like, oh, okay, you're part of the tribe now. It was, it was, it was meaningful because, because Jerry, as, as the head of the Hui, throws a little mini shaka to him yeah. at the end of the movie. Right. That's all it took. Right. It wasn't a, hey, yeah, come on, come with us. Let's go have a, you know, let's go have a luau. It was just little mini shaka. It was a begrudging respect that you believed. Yeah. Because it wasn't overdone. It wasn't right. corny, you know? I did love that it wasn't a full shaka. It, was it wasn't like, a full, <laughs> little, little mini shaka. Yeah. 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 Little, little, from the hip. A little, little, mi- little micro shaka. Perfect amount. <laughs> <laughs> micro shaka. Yeah. When, when, a, when a movie like this gets the oak, um, and by oak I mean the, the middle of the movie you were talking about earlier with John, that is the part that makes it stand the test of time, and age even better mm-hmm. has gotten um, uh, those little shockers and, and the Jerry character and uh, well, our nostalgia plays a role too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun, but it's not just the nostalgia that carries this movie 38 years later to a fan base like this. And I was just curious, do you have any other projects in your career? Because your career is rich. There's a lot of work, a lot of work that you've done. Is there anything else out there that has this much of a genre cult classic um, thing going? No, not really. I, I, you know, the science fiction fans are really uh, loyal and intense. And yeah. my first series was Logan's Run, so yeah, that that has a huge following, right? You know, and I, I've I've got I've got uh, like you know uh, social media. Uh, followers that there's a French group that grew up on Logan's run, really? <laughs> you know, and a British group. And it, the only place it wasn't a hit was in the U S but, uh, 
you know, and that's that's pretty avid. And then and then um, because I did because I did this stripper film, my first production that I ever produced myself was called For Ladies Only. Okay, it was a male stripper movie. Nice. So like Magic <laughs> Mike, first version one. It, it was Magic Mike stole it from from me. Yeah. Wow, unreal. Um, I, sh- I shot it in 1981. Wow. wow. And it was the most watched television movie of all time. <laughs> Eat and your heart out, Soderbergh. Well, no, I'm I mean, joking. you know, they, they, they spent probably, I, I think I made mine for $3.1 million and they spent, you know, $100 million on theirs. Oh, so, wow, yeah. So they're, they're going to obviously have a whole lot better uh, production values and everything. But well, yeah. the idea was a new idea in 1981. You know, I had this, this big hit series, Trapper John. I was number one in the country. And so anything I wanted to make with my new production company, the network would say, yeah, okay, yeah, let's make that. <laughs> yeah. I came in with a poster of me with a towel wrapped around me and, a, you know, for ladies only. <laughs> you know, Johnny goes to, to New York and... and uh, um, oh shoot! What was the name of the of the club in L.A. that that was? I'm blanking on it. Chippendale. 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 Yeah, I was having a senior moment. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Chippendale's had only opened a year before to this, and it made all the covers of you know people in time. And, yeah, uh, because it was women watching men strip, and what a concept! <laughs> so I thought, you know, all right, I'll do that. Yeah, let me let me make a story about that. And interestingly, with that film, I, I created the story with a writer of that, that I had been thinking about. Because when I first got to Hollywood 10 years before that, 1971, I was starving. I had no money. I, I spent four and a half years studying and pounding the pavement right. before I even got an agent, you know, mm. and I studying acting. And, and I would, I would pl- I played the guitar and I was writing music and sing my own songs and stuff. So I'd go up to the Troubadour. Which was a you know the wow. the club at of the course, time yeah. you know mm-hmm. seventy one seventy two seventy three, and I would stand in line on Mondays to go play on Hootenanny night at the Troubadour. You get your fifteen minutes. You get a window. If you stood there long enough in the afternoon, you'd, in the line you'd eventually get there, and they'd say, "Okay, you're from one fifteen to one thirty, you know, in the morning." Oh, <laughs> you know, and cool. and well, it was better than nothing. Yeah, and yeah. Producers. You know, music producers were always coming to the Troubadour to listen crazy to these to. acts to discover people. Yeah. So my dream was, you know, okay, well, I'm starving. I'm eating popcorn for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm. 17 cent boxes of Kraft macaroni and cheese. I'm I'm gonna try and and you know get a producer to say, yeah, we think we might want to develop, a, you know, a songwriting career for you. You know. Yeah. And I went up there. I'd sing my own songs, and I always got business cards. You know. Yeah. They were always for porn films. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. I, I mean, the porn producers apparently were there just as much as the music producers yeah. looking for hungry, uh, you know, decent looking actors who might yeah. be willing to do porn movies for them. So I'd get these these cards for porn films and it was oh. and I'm starving. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, I can't do that. That would be that. That'll haunt me for the rest of my life. John, would yeah. you do that? Sorry, uh, just yeah, real quick. You're a better man than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the Troubadour. So, is, so I always is, can you still get these cards at the Troubadour? Yeah, probably. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm on a flight it, tomorrow. I haven't done it in 50 years. <laughs> but uh, but I, I you know I, I opted not to do it, you know, and and just continue to wash windows yeah. in the middle of the night and stuff to yeah. make, make a few bucks to live yeah. on. Well, it would have haunted your career. It, well, of course forever. it would have. Yeah. Of course it would have. But that's what this movie was about. This this kid studying acting in New York. Okay. And, and uh, you know, he's living on nothing. 
And a, a guy in the class says, you know, why don't you come work as a waiter where, I, where I'm dancing? And he says, oh, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, you just take your shirt off and then you just serve drinks. And of course, <laughs> it becomes like one of those all about Eve moments, you know, where yeah. the dancer doesn't show up and they say, Johnny, you get up there. <laughs> yeah. And so he goes up there and he's so good at it that he starts like making the cover of, of people. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, as this, this dancer in this new, newfangled men's, you know, male strip club and totally sabotages his career. Uh, right. So I just took the, 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 the male stripper thing and transferred, you know, in, in, instead of porn films yeah. you know, and played it out from there. And I had Reagan's daughter as my girlfriend, you know, Patty Davis. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and Lee Grant was one of the ladies that I, that, you know, I was having an affair with one of the older women okay. who, who came to the club and it, it was, it was a big hit film. I bet. No so I, so that has it. So, and, but uh, interestingly, I had a huge gay side that loved that movie that I hadn't anticipated. Oh, okay. Um, so apparently it wasn't for ladies only. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then I did a film where I played a gay guy with Randall Kleiser directing. I played Randall. Okay. Um, called It's My Party, me and Eric Roberts. Okay. And, and uh, Randall, of course, had, had that was after I had made North Shore. Okay. And because and, I made North Shore in 87, and then I did It's My Party in 1995. I did The Gathering with Randall in 1979, a Christmas movie that won the Emmy for Best Movie of the Year. Nice. Wow. And so that's how I knew Randall. That's how Randall knew I served. Yeah. And so the offer came to me. I didn't audition for, for North Shore. That's great. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I knew Randall, and he knew I served. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no yeah. And, he, and he, he knew he liked my acting, and he, and he knew that there weren't... You know, many actors of the of a, the right age in Hollywood who actually surfed. Sure. Exactly. So he, the offer came, and uh, and I, you know, I'm, I know I'm wandering with my conversation here, but one thing leads to another in Hollywood, and all these circles intercept. Sure. Yeah. And uh, and I had been waiting. I I you know, uh, Big Wednesday. I'd gone in on Big Wednesday. I got real close on Big Wednesday to the Bill Cat role. Really. Yeah, and I sat with John Milius, and and we were talking surfing. John was a big surfer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and uh, we sat for two hours one day, and in his office, and talked about surfing. <laughs> and he goes, "Man," he said, "I that you're you're fantastic. He said, you're perfect for this. I wish I could use you, but I can't." Uh, I said, um, "Sorry, John. Why, 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 why can't you?" And he goes, "Because you don't look like a surfer." What? Oh, I know. Wow. And that oh, was it. Oh, man. I wasn't blonde. Uh. I thought, I mean, it's, I, that, I was brokenhearted. Yeah. I, I wanted, I wanted to do a surf movie. Yeah. I wanted oh. to get paid. I'd studied all these years to become a good actor. I wanted to get paid to do the thing I love most in the world. Yeah. And it hadn't happened. And that was, that was what, four years, five years before North Shore. Yeah. So when North Shore came along, it was like, Oh my God! Yes. Okay. My dream isn't going to go unrealized. I am going to do a surf movie. I am going to get paid to go do what I love most and be able to combine the two things that I enjoy most and am most devoted to in life into the same project. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. Speaking of surfing, when did you uh, start surfing? Like, when did you catch your first waves? 1959. Uh, I was nine years old. I was on the backside of Catalina. And a guy came over. I, I, I would go out there with my dad and with a couple of friends. We'd camp, Boy Scouts and stuff. 
Um, you know, I grew up on that island. It yeah. was, it was, I was born there. My father was born there. My oh, grandfather wow. started the glass bottom boats there. Wow. My father ran them his whole life. And um, Your dad and ran the glass bottom boats in My grandfather Avalon. started the grandfather, glass bottom okay. boats in Avalon. My dad ran them his whole life. Wow. And had been a captain of a minesweeper in the Philippines in World War II and then came back to the island and just ran the big paddle wheeler glass bottom boats yeah. around the harbor over the undersea gardens, you know, and yeah. he talked to the, to the, all the, yeah. he held about 200 people. And oh, wow. So, well, now what you're seeing under the glass here, these, that's a horn shark. Now the horn sharks are, you know, yeah. yeah. And, and no, there comes a seal. He's going to try and, you know, those are Garibaldi he's going after. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that was going to be my destiny. You know, wow. I was going to be the third generation glass bottom boat pilot and, and, and uh, so you tour do, guide. So you do come from show business. In more ways than, than uh, you can imagine. Yeah. I was destined to be an actor in so many ways. Looking back, I see it so clearly. Right. I had a hat rack. When I was five, I had a hat rack be over my bed. You know, one of those accordion racks that has all the pegs on it? Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. We'd spread it out. We had attached it to my wall, and I had a hat on every one of those pegs. There was a fireman's cap, a painter's cap, my dad's boat captain cap, a baseball cap. And in the mornings, I'm five. In the mornings, I would, I remember getting up and getting dressed and getting ready to walk up to the, to the school to ki go to kindergarten and deciding what, uh, who I was going to be that day. Oh, wow. <laughs> who am I going to be cool. today? You know, and I'd pick a hat and that, that would be my identity for the day. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I don't think I would act try to act once I put the cap on. I don't think I try to act differently no, than any though. other cap. But it was my, I liked the idea of an of a new identity each day. That keeps it interesting. And then I, I made all my money from, from 4 to 13. The only money I ever made was diving for coins from the tourists. The big white steamer would come over with 2,000 people on it and, <laughs> and, it would take a half an hour for them to get the gangplanks down to unload the boat. So we would, the local boys, there's about 20 of us, would swim out to where the, the big white steamer was. And it yeah. was, you know, 120 yards long. And the bow was in about 30 feet of water and the stern was in 60 feet of water. And big, huge twin screws turning at the back, you know. Yeah. That would take about a half an hour to finally come to a stop. Right. And as we got older, you would graduate from the bow all the way out to the stern and people would be stuck there just looking at the town and sort of looking over the railing for a half an hour so we were going throw coin throw coin throw coin and they thought we were like tahitians people are not very bright you know <laughs> yeah. they, they get on the boat in long beach yeah and an hour and 45 minutes later they think they're in Tahiti. <laughs> yeah right so we were playing tahitians oh you guys are brilliant and and performing for them doing Fights. I mean, we we were fighting each other for the money, but we sure. weren't throwing blows. We were, no, yeah. we were, uh, you know, exaggerating. Sure. The the drama of going after these quarters and nickels and dimes and occasionally a silver dollar. You know, yeah. Wow. If, they were, if they were drunk enough on the trip over, <laughs> and then once they'd be in town, we'd, I, you know, I had I never wore shoes as a kid, so I'd I'd say, you know, people had had Super Eight cameras, yeah. you know, and I'd say. Um, I'll put out that cigarette with my bare foot if you pay me a quarter, you know. And and they would go, "You'll put out the cigarette with your foot." And I said, "Yeah, yeah. you recorder." Because I had leather on the bottom of my feet. Oh I mean, yeah, my, I had callus that was so thick that I couldn't feel anything. Uh, right, you know. I never wore shoes. That's amazing. 
<laughs> so it was all show business. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know. That. And then, and then in junior high and high school, I mean, I would, I was, you know, I was doing shows and and uh, singing in the variety show, and I don't know why I just loved doing it. And my mother was was kind, was very artistic, but she was kind of a of a crazy woman in one hand, but she was also. Looking back, I really appreciate it. What a what a wonderful gift she gave me. She used to sit me on her lap when I was about four or five, and she'd she'd read me uh, "If" the poem "If" by Rudyard Kipling. Okay, mm-hmm. about about what it is to be a man and 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 a, what kind of man to be. Okay, and then she would read me the lyrics of "You've Got to Be Taught to Hate" from South Pacific, and then she she would fi- finish it. Just talk about five or six minutes every yeah. every morning she sit me on her lap little tiny boy and i i mean i hated it because I, I wanted to go outside and play okay yeah. but she would just sit me and then she'd read me if and then she'd she'd read me the lyrics from south pacific or i'd read them after i learned it i'd read them with her and then she'd say now remember no matter where you go no matter what you do you belong there hmm. and i said okay mom thanks <laughs> can, I, can i go and she go, okay have a good day come back before dark you know, I'm on an wow. island. How much trouble can I get in? Right. I knew I knew how to how to avoid rattlesnakes, and I and I learned to swim before I learned to walk. So there was nothing else to be afraid of. Right. Yeah. So I was outdoors all day, every day, pretending, throwing dirt clods. You know, <coughs> doing war movies with my buddies, and it was it was an idyllic childhood. That's and cool. One that lent itself to my imagination. And then there were shooting movies around me. The first movie I ever saw being filmed was The Battle of Bloody Beach with Audie Murphy mm, starring okay. in it. Audie Murphy, who was the most, he, he, he won the, 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 uh, the highest award that, that, that you can win, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and he, had, he had been the most awarded hero of World War II. Wow. And he became a big movie star. And, uh, and I got his autograph when I was about four or five. And my dad, because they'd hire my dad before the boat trips, the glass bottom boat trips would start to take them down to a cove to shoot a movie mm, and then sure. go pick them up at the end of the day and bring them back. So I'd go with my dad. Yeah. So I'd see all these movies, you know, and we had Marlon Brando and Yul Brenner shooting a movie called Moriturri on a boat there. And eventually in 1965, I was 15 years old. And I had done some plays, and I knew I loved acting, but I didn't really understand. I didn't think I could ever be a professional actor because as much as I loved movies, and I always thought there was something magical about it that mere mortals like myself would never understand. You know, I'd sit in the theater, and I'd, I'd be mesmerized by a film, and I, I'd just go, oh, you know, I, I, that, that's a whole different world. Like, I, don't, I don't know how they do it, but I love watching it. And then I'm on the boat, my dad's boat. The shoot—it's called the, the movie's called the Glass Bottom Boat. They're shooting it on my dad's boat. Wow. Doris Day and Rod Taylor are the stars of it. Wow! I'm about ten feet away, and I'm wa- and it's the first time I've ever been able to get this close to a set. And I'm watching them, you know, shoot a scene. And Doris screws up and goes ah, and she drops an f bomb. And she says, "Let's do it again." She's you know, <laughs> god damn it. And I'm. It was like an epiphany. First of all, that Doris day could drop the f-bomb that, yeah. was, that was an epiphany yeah. but also just i went oh that's that's how it works you you do it and you screw it up until you get it right you do a little piece and you get it right and then you move on to the next piece yeah. 
and then you put it all together like a puzzle, and that's the magic I've been sitting in <laughs> theater watching. Kind of like surfing. I can do that. Yeah. I can screw up until I get it right. Yeah. And I, literally that day, when I was 15, 1965, I knew that for the rest of my life I would be acting. Wow. I just knew it. That was that was that was that cemented it. Yeah. And and you know it was 10 years before I got an agent, 10 years before because I had to go finish high school, I had to go through 3 years in the army, I had to go through 4 or 5 years of studying in Hollywood on the GI Bill. Sure. Before I was good enough. And I and I knew that. I never presumed it would be easy to learn how to be an actor. But I just knew that's what I was going to be. Yeah. yeah. I knew I was going to go there and I was going to learn it and I was going to get it right. Yeah. When seeing that moment, would it would I went, become so oh, achievable Oh, they're human you. beings. Yeah. Yeah. They're human beings. They're, yeah. they're they're, they got foibles just like all the rest of us. Yeah. And, and also, I had been the one they'd said, hey, go get in the, get in the golf cart. We don't have cars in Catalina, right? Said, get yeah. in the golf cart and go pick up Doris Day at her hotel up in back of town. Wow. <laughs> so I was 15. I'd drive the golf cart up. I went to the, to the door of the, of the room they had told me to knock on. I knocked on it, and this woman came to the door, and I said, hi, I'm here to pick up Miss Day. And she said, yeah, that's me. And I went, no, 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 Doris Day. And she goes, <laughs> Yeah, that's me. It was before makeup. Yeah. yeah. Before yeah. makeup and hair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that was another lesson. It was like, <laughs> oh. You, they don't you, look like this all the time. Of, you get a lot of help in the makeup trailer. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was like, oh, it all started to fall into place. And, and then I knew from then on, that's, that's just going to be my life. And it has been. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I'm still working. So. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, my, all my dreams have come true and, and, and more so. Nice, they nice. shot a little scene on Aval in Avalon for in Chinatown, where Nicholson yeah. goes out there to research the Albacore Club or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the Yacht Club. The Yacht Club. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't wanted. know what they called it in Chinatown, yeah. but yeah. You were already in L.A. or the Army by then, I think. Uh, when Chinatown came out, I think that was yeah. I was I was probably in Hollywood by the, it was 1972, 73. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I had, I came to Hollywood in 1971. Right on. Okay. Nice. Well, just real quick, circle us back to the nine-year-old boy. That's going surfing for the first time. Do you remember your first? Oh, yeah, that was the original question, wasn't it? Yeah, Sorry yeah. about that. No, that's all I good. I get going, and it's oh, like, I love it. That's what we do this for. Okay. But um, do you remember your first wave that you caught? Uh, Two-part question. And was surfing, did it come naturally to you, or did, it, did you have to really work at it? It didn't come naturally because I, I, I the guy had a longboard. He came off of a, off of a boat, like a sailboat. It was moored on the other side of Catalina at this place called Shark Harbor. Mm -hmm. Little Harbor, Shark Harbor. It's these two little bays. One is protected and one isn't. We'd always go to the one that wasn't and body surf and stuff. Mm -hmm. They're right side by side. And he paddled in from the from the sailboat with this, you know, it was like a 10-6 Ole or something. You yeah. Know? <clears throat> well, maybe not even Ole. I don't even remember what the make of that board was. There were, <laughs> you know, Jacobs and Ole and... Velzi were making boards then, not man, not many more. Yeah, I don't think even Hobie had even started yet. But he let me use it after he. I watched him surf for a little while, and he wasn't particularly good, but he was having fun, and it, I was fascinated by it. And I just went out and bellied my way in on two or three waves, and you know you remember that's yeah. all it took. The yeah. first time you're bellying in on a wave, and the water's rushing by you, and you know. 
as I wrote in a poem when in high school, I was riding on the arm of the Lord, man. It was, mm. <laughs> it was, it was just so magical. And I, I, I couldn't think of anything else after that. Yeah. You know, I couldn't think of anything else. And, and I think it was the following year that surfer magazine started. John Severson got that going. And then, uh, and you know, my first board, I bought a used board. It was like a nine six Ole. Um, that was pretty beat up, but three stringers. You know, weighed about thirty five pounds. Yeah, I was about one hundred and ten pounds. <laughs> um, and then and then uh, I rode that for a couple of years. We used to hike thirteen miles out to the other side of the island. Wow! With that board on my head. Good lord! Oh my so you know, God. I, I was going to ask, was that a golf cart or no? I mean, that's, no, that's we hike. walked. Wow! Wow! You couldn't take cars out into the interior unless you had a card key, a pass. Yeah. Okay. So we would walk at night on a Friday night. We, me and there's still one of one of us is still alive besides me that was a member of the Ben Weston Surf Club. There's a beach called Ben Weston Beach over there, and uh, there's still one alive, Pastor Lopez. He's one of my dearest friends in the world. And uh, we would we would walk all the way out there at night with a board on my head, thirty five pound board on my head, right. thirteen miles, unreal, wow. just to get there by midnight or so and sleep and get up at with with dawn and surf until Sunday evening and then walk back in. Right, that'll and, give you some shoulder. And muscles. I was and I was eleven, twelve. Wow, but like I said, my parents weren't worried about me, you know, because. It wasn't any trouble you could get on the island. They'd stay away from the buffalo. Yeah. You know, and know about rattlesnakes. And yeah. That was it. Don't nice. poach Don't poach the lobster traps. You'll get shot. <laughs> okay. You know? Yeah. You we'd, ever take, we'd take cans of SpaghettiOs and a backpack and oh, our yeah. surfboards on our head. Perfect. Wow. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Do you ever read Last of the Blue Water Hunters? No. It's a spearfishing book and the guy, uh, you know, some of the book is set around Catalina and he's a spearfishing um, purist, you know, yeah. aficionado. It's a short book. It's a great read. Anybody that wants to dip their toe um, yeah, I mean, you don't have to be a spear fisherman to really love it. Just thought maybe I'd bring. Yeah, it up. no, I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah, last little blue water hunters. Good sure. One. 
Did you ever have any aspirations of competitive surfing? Um, um, oh, we had little contests on the island, you know. I, 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 I remember placing in those contests. But, you know, we'd have friends who'd come over from the mainland. You know, we had a lot of friends in Long Beach and Seal Beach and Huntington Beach um, who made regular trips to the island. Okay. Know? Mostly like, you know, the children, the surfer kids of yacht owners who came out of Newport, mm-hmm. you know, or, or San Pedro and would come over to the island regularly weekend by weekend. And, and after, you know, by the time I, by, by 62 or 63, 64, I'm 13, 14 years old and they've all been introduced to the beach breaks on the other side by then. And okay. so we'd have these little contests and stuff and, and that was fun. But I'm I'm Chandler, man. I mean, I was Chandler long. <laughs> well, that's what I was. was that's what I was wondering. That's what I was wondering. You know, it's yeah. like, no, I just I just love the, I just love surfing. You know, I love everything around it. I love the act of it. I love the anticipation of it. I love, I love basking in the afterglow of it. You know, my wife now, uh, still, you know, this is. What now? Uh, Sixty-two years after I started surfing, she'll go, "Hey, asshole, go surf," <laughs> right? Because she wants me to come back a nicer human being. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't go away, and she's right. Yeah, I was fortunate. Mm-hmm. I just a couple of weeks ago, I went down to Nicaragua with a, a good friend that I travel a bunch with, um, and we had a day where we we drove up north, like almost to Honduras, and we found this beach break that was just. We drove for miles on the beach without seeing another human. And we just had a, a couple of uh, Nicaraguan kids from the from the little surf camp we were staying at. They were with us, and then the two of us. And we found this beach. It was just nobody as far as you could see, and just peaks everywhere. And we, we just drove up and down the beach. We'd find a peak. We'd surf it for a couple hours, then the tide would change it. We'd see another one working yeah. you know, down the beach. Right. We'd drive down there. And like, and we're just sitting in the water, uh, Tank and I, and we're just looking at each other. We're just giggling. You know, it's like, here, I'm 51 years old, yeah. Tank's 40, and we're just giggling, and it just doesn't go away. That feeling no. just doesn't go away. I remember I went once, not that long, I mean, it was about 20 years ago, I went down to Ecuador, and uh, I, I, I was, I was going to go out to, to the Galapagos and do 10 days on a boat in the Galapagos, not to surf, mm-hmm. to, to, to swim with sharks and just walk the islands out there, and, you know, it's, it's like a religious experience out there yeah. with, with nature. Yeah. But before I did that, um, I rented a car, me and a buddy, and we drove around uh, the coast of Ecuador. And I found this right-hand point break with nobody there. It was like mm. it was it, it it was like as good as as Seal Point outside of uh, uh, Jeffrey's Bay. Yeah, you know, which is like like if Jeffrey's is a ten, Seal Point is an eight. Mm-hmm. And I found it with nobody there. Nobody. Not a wow. car. Not a human. It's far from anywhere. Wow. And my buddy and I surfed that thing. It w- you talk about a smile on your face. Yeah. You just can't believe it. It's it's like stumbling across, uh, you know, a $1,000 bill on the sidewalk. Right. Yeah. You just can't believe that you, you were that blessed. It's and, a I, and, and all through our lives, we're, we're l- waiting for those moments, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can't make the sex comparison. But it's pretty close. It's amazing. There's a lot of comparisons. I've often said, people say, what do you love most about surfing? And I said, well, there's there's only three things in my life. Not only, actually. I'm I'm blessed to have three things in my life 
that that make me live only in the moment. Right. There's no past. There's no future. There's no stress. There's no there's no worry. I'm living 100% inside this moment, and that's sex. That's when they say action to when they say cut, yep. and that's riding a wave. Nice. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, as soon as I kick out, I may go, oh, man, it's getting late. Oh, shoot, Randy's going to be mad at me because I'm not home for dinner. But as soon as I'm on that wave, those thoughts all are gone, and I'm living inside that moment. Yeah. yeah. No matter, you know, isn't that true for you? It is. I, I don't have any. You have three. I think I have two at this point. I'm trying to think of what my third might be. I mean, maybe, okay, I'm a CPA, right? So maybe when I'm absolutely Adding. in the zone of a spreadsheet. Doing addition. It is my bit. I'm creating art on that spreadsheet, and right. it's the best spreadsheet oh, ever. All right, you've shit. lost me, man. Oh, shit. You've no, lost me. Well, it's a little inside joke because we have to, somehow Kevin has to work into the conversation of every podcast. <laughs> That he is an accountant. He's a CPA. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. It's it's uh, often we have more time. By the way, I was just checking our time, and we do have yeah, more yeah, time. We're Your good. friend, yeah. Um, but I, I feel like the uh, story you told us at dinner the other night bears repeating. There was a a moment where you were faced with the decision to enter the army, mm. or did you get drafted? Well, I can't remember what it was, but. And what what do you want? Yeah, what are we, 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 going, went, are we going with this? We went to the conscientious objector oh, yeah. uh, rule that was different then, and it changed while you were there. Yeah. Um, and the shit you went through to help yeah. change yeah. that, which... Um, okay, well, that's that's like we're going to a darker place. Um, I, was, I feel like it led to a lighter place, though. Oh, it does. You yeah, know, no, no, crazy, it, it, huh? it all ended up being, you know, a, a very positive uh, story in my life, and uh, uh, it, it's been something that strengthened me, I think, for the rest of my life. But right. I was, you know, it was 1968. I graduated from high school. Yeah. Um, and I got a draft notice almost immediately. And I was just learning how to wear hard shoes, man. I wasn't, it wasn't like I had, you know, had, had opportunities to put in the dipstick and test my feelings about the world. I, was, I had just left the island for the first time for any, you know, duration. Yeah. Um, other than a weekend trip to play a baseball game against wow. some school or something, and now I'm suddenly I'm facing a draft from from the army to go into infantry because that's who was getting killed. That was you know mm-hmm. sixty thousand uh, soldiers killed over there in Vietnam, and, yeah. and I had been paying attention to the war and I had feelings about it, but I I hadn't connected any dots, and I get this draft notice, and all of a sudden I had to start really thinking about what do I what do I want, you know, and, and what, what am I, what am I afraid of? Right. And I realized I wasn't afraid of dying because I'm not religious and, and I had been, I'd been raised Mormon by my mom and everybody on her side was Mormon and my dad wasn't religious at all. So she was like a Jack Mormon, but she wanted to raise her kids Mormon and I left it at 13. I just couldn't put up with it anymore or any religion for that matter. I'd tried yeah. going to the Catholic church and going to the Christian science and, you know, just, just went, no, you know, it doesn't, I, I, I believe in a lot of the dogma, but I, you know, of, of right and wrong and the Ten yeah. Commandments and all that, but I'm not, I just don't, Yeah. I'm not a religious guy. I'm yeah. a secular human being. Right. I knew that at 18. Okay. But, but I didn't want to kill anyone. I realized what, I'm not afraid of dying because I don't, I'm not worried about heaven or hell. 
Yeah. But I was afraid of living in the hell of having killed someone. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to do that. I knew I didn't want to do that at 18. I'm still figuring shit out. And so I, I went in for my, uh, my, my uh, physical and stuff, you know, at the induction center in Los Angeles. And then I had like two months before they wanted me to, to report. And that was when I was doing a lot of thinking. And I went, okay, if I enlist, I'd, I, I've investigated a little. I talked to, to some people and they said, well, if you enlist for an extra year, you can choose what you do in the Army. Wow. I went, oh, okay. Okay, that sounds good. I'll be a medic. Right. And then I will be helping people and I won't be killing people. and I won't have anything to do with the killing part of being in the Army. Yeah. So th that's what I did. I enlisted for three years instead right. of taking the two that they would draft you for. Right. I was going to give them an extra year and, and just never carry, you know, never shoot anyone. Just, just help people get well. Meanwhile, they think they're going to change your mind. That's well, point, uh, yeah, they do. They don't, first of all, then they're going to send you to boot camp. You're going to have to shoot rifles and do hand to hand combat and oh, do yeah. everything else anyway. They don't know that I'm not intending to carry a weapon or any of that. Okay. I didn't even know what that made me. I just knew what I wanted and what I didn't want. Right. I'm in the army. I'm now I'm in boot camp and I'm, they're telling me to growl when I'm in the sand pits because I'm doing hand to hand combat training. I'm saying, why do I have to growl? And, you know, drill sergeants don't want anybody to ask why <laughs> anything. No. They're going, because when you're in the sand pits learning hand to hand, you're an animal. You're not a human being. You're an animal. And you, you know, and you will kill. And I said, all right, I'll learn how to do it, but I'm not going to growl. I'm not going to give you that. What? You know, right. and they had me running around you know, sometimes 12 hours a day, you know, just in the rain. It was January of 1969 in the Fort Ord up by Monterey, and I ended up with uh, with uh, walking pneumonia and coughing up blood and for weeks. Wow. Um, I was, you know, and I was, I had the highest PT scores, physical training scores. I was an expert marksman. But they give you these silhouetted targets, and you knock the targets down. Yeah. And if you do that thousands of times, every time this silhouette of a human being goes down when you hit it with a bullet. Right. When By the time you get to Vietnam... You're shooting at silhouettes anyway, yeah. and you've gotten used to not thinking twice about it. Yeah. So there's, I knew what they were doing. They were trying to steal my ability to feel bad or to be, you know, to be conscious. Yeah. And I understand that an, a soldier needs to not have those things. Right. But I wasn't going to give them that. I just couldn't do that. I couldn't give them that. It wasn't I was deciding not to. It was I, I, I sat in my bunk in the middle of my my bay at C-33 up at Fort Ord, weeping in the middle of the night sometimes, going, just shut up and go along. Why are you doing this? Why are you making your life so much harder here than it has to be? And I couldn't. I just couldn't give them my, my conscience, you know. And, and so I got through it somehow. I survived boot camp, went off to, Fort or, or to, uh, uh, to, to San Antonio, Texas, to, to become a medic, to go through medic training. And I heard about this thing called a conscientious objector. And I said, oh, that's what I am. I, now right. I know what I want, what I am. And I went, I want an application to be a conscientious objector and not have to carry a weapon. And they laughed because they, they said, what's your religion? You have to be a Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witness, Quaker. I said, I don't have any religion. And they laughed. Right. Mm. And, I, and I said, well, 
why are you laughing? Yeah. You know, because nobody, nobody's a CEO mm-hmm. if, based on moral grounds. That's idiotic. I said, but that's what I am. And they said, well, you can go ahead and try, but we're not going to recognize it. We're not going to, you know, say yes to one. Nobody's going to sign off on your applications. Right. So that started a process. And I was so determined that I started rocking the boat. And the Army Times, which is like a paper that's published within the Army, started talking about my case. Wow. It had been fought over. This, this issue had been fought over since the writing of the Constitution. Okay. Mm. And, and that's how they had settled on those religions could qualify for CO status. Uh. But that non-religious uh, COs was, was not possible. Okay. So finally, the as, as they were deciding who's going to go to combat and who's going to go elsewhere, everybody in my unit, all the medics, were being sent to Vietnam, but they didn't send me because they couldn't send me if my case was in litigation. Okay. Until they decided it, mm. and they they couldn't get me to, to. They were trying to get me to pull my applications and give in and sure. and end it. And they oh, were wow. making my life miserable. So they sent me to Germany to an old army, uh, Nazi barracks uh, in Landstuhl, Germany, which is by the, the biggest army hospital in Europe. Okay. And I was working as a medic eight hours a day. And the other hours of the day, I had to stay away from soldiers because I was contagious with right. this terrible disease of pacifism. Yeah. And stay in my little, my little basement room in a... In a little tiny room, a uh, cryptograph room with three little windows that were at ground level that were, you know, about three inches wide with bars on them. And I was there for two years and seven months. Wow. And that's where I learned to play the guitar and I learned to write songs. And uh, that's where I learned who I really was. Yeah. And, and I think there's, there's talking the talk. Like, uh, yeah, I'm a conscientious, conscientious objector. And then there's walking that walk, which you did. Well, you didn't even know the name of what you were. Not and when I started. No, exactly. And then, but that's, that defines kind of your life. And, and I feel like. Kind that, of. Well, the thing that really helped define it was that I was fighting, going up what they called USARAR, United States Army Europe, USARAR, um, going up the chain of command with my applications, with review boards. You know, I'd sit at big tables with generals and colonels who would, who would say, all right, now, if you was walking down the street with your mama and a big black man grabbed your mama and started raping her on the street in front of you, what would you do? <laughs> and, you know, what's your answer going to be? Yeah. What's yeah. your answer going to be? If I said, well, I would stop him. They Well, then you're no conscientious objector. Get out of here. Right. Um, you know, and, and if you said I wouldn't stop him, they, they, they wouldn't believe you. Right. right. Why would you not stop a man from trying, trying to? And, of course, he'd have to be black, right? Oh, yeah. Um, there was so much racism in the Army then. It probably still is. But... Uh, so the answer was, I can't tell you that, you know, what I would have, what I would do. I can only tell you what I've done in my life, you know, um, and, and, and I, I can, I can tell you a million reasons why I would avoid that situation right. and, and why I would take every other option before violence was initiated. And, you know, they'd all just, just shake their head and laugh, you know, but, yeah. but I had review boards. I mean, I had, I had to convince a chaplain. I had to get a chaplain to sign. This is a man who has, who has rationalized being a chaplain in the army, blessing soldiers as they go into battle, right? And going into battle himself. And I had to convince him that I was sincere, 
and that I deserved to be able to follow my heart. Man. And I did. I convinced him. He signed off. Uh, psych- psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, generals, commanding officers. I had to go through this for months and months and months. It took, it took two years and seven months of going through that. And then one of it in- included a moment where I lost all hope and tried to end myself with morphine surrettes that I had access to as a medic in a psychiatric ward for a few weeks where I found out that I wasn't hopeless like I thought, felt like yeah. I was. And, um, but I ended up winning. I ended up changing an army regulation. Um, you you and, do and got out on February 9th, nineteen seventy one, and the army regulation was changed to say if a man, if a man's uh, moral objection to violence and war holds the same place within his soul as God does in the soul of a religious man, then that man is entitled to follow his moral objection, and that's just a little paragraph that was added into the wow. army regulations. Wow, and. That was in 1971 in February that I got out. And the, the draft ended in 1973. The war ended in 75. But between then and 1973, 1,800 men got out based on my case. Wow. 1,800 other men who felt like me yeah. and who were able to prove their sincerity and go through all those hoops like I did right. were able to get out or not carry weapons, be recognized legitimately as COs. And I got out with an honorable discharge. I mean, I'd served. I'd been a good medic for... for Three years, yeah, almost three years. You know, a bit maybe a month and a half shy of three years, but but I got out on my terms, right? And then uh, I wasn't even twenty one yet. Exactly, wow. I wasn't even twenty one, and I had gone through that virtual yeah. prison sentence too because of the basement involved with your duty yeah. and all that. isolation, right? And a kind of psychological torture that I'd been through, and but more importantly, and the thing that really helped me is is that I had realized that you know what you think you can't take any more of you can take a lot more of yeah okay and when you think things are hopeless they're not hopeless and and i had always been taught through watching you know john wayne movies or or uh, you know westerns where the good guy you know stands up for what's right but he ends up dying you know yeah uh, that i that you don't die if you do what's right if you don't die, if you follow your heart, if you if you have, uh, you know, if you're determined to be ethical, you don't it, you don't necessarily have to pay a huge price for it. You can come out ahead mm-hmm. with your ethics. And I also learned that, and and this is this is you know, I have a lot of friends, people I respect highly, who say, well, don't blame the soldier, blame the people who send him into battle. Mm-hmm. I was a soldier. I was just as much a part of the weapon as as the barrel of the of the rifle. Yep. I may not have been the bullet, but that rifle doesn't fire without a firing pin or a barrel or a butt or a sight. Um, and without a medic, the the army does not function. Right. So I felt just as responsible for what was going on around the world, and particularly at that moment in Vietnam. Um, which wasn't a war, a legitimate war. Mm-mm. There haven't been very many in our history, um, World War II being the last one. Um, and I felt just as responsible, f- and so I, I felt just as, my conscience was just as bloody red as anybody, as any other job I might have been doing. And, yeah. and I, when I got out, um, I took that experience 
And when they said, you know, you're going to Hollywood, man, that, that, you know, how hard it is in Hollywood, you know, <laughs> what the odds are in Hollywood. I just went, nah, you kidding me. Yeah. It was child's play. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's, I, and it's always been, it was just fun. Hollywood was just fun. Being hungry was just fun. Pounding the streets was fun. Learning day to day how to become a better actor, how to, because really being an actor is like, is like being, you know, you have to, you have to become a psychologist, you know? Okay. And, and, and every day I, I was, fi- I was finding new information and making breakthroughs and, it's just been it's just been a glorious <laughs> life. I've been blessed to have it, and uh, I couldn't be more grateful. Yeah, That's it was very amazing. informative to your career. I think that period of time, which it's why it stuck with me, the story you told the other night, mm-hmm. and it I w- it will stick with me. I uh, I know a lot of people that talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. You walk the walk. I mean, when you go into something, we you know we talked about this, whatever it might be uh, in life, you're all in. And uh, I, fi- I find that amazing. I just I <laughs> love that energy that, no, you know, you brought it to North Shore's, you know, Chandler character. You brought it to the uh, screen many other times, obviously. And, you know, we, uh, we're we just lucky to have you. You, you agreed to come out here mm-hmm. and be a part of this with not, there's not a lot that Gregory walks away with from this experience other than the joy of being around like-minded people and watching this creation that you've done um on screen and a q a a dialogue with john and me over the last few days it's been extremely fulfilling i really appreciate Great. you coming and doing I'm this so glad to hear it yeah yeah, yeah it's been an, an amazing time well, you guys do an amazing thing i mean I, I you know i i don't i think your 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 rewards are not economic in this your rewards are heartfelt you know and and yeah. you're doing it from the heart so i really respect that. and that's everything in my life i do from the heart so I, I yeah, you're here for yeah, that reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's why we do it too. We do it yeah. from the heart. I, yeah. I, I would say that it might be one of the things when I'm di- deep into this and we have a blissful moment, um, not thinking about anything else. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. I, I just, do, could, I do want to put you on the spot one time though, before we wrap it up yeah. here. Um, so the name of the podcast is surf stories. And so okay. we always, uh, we always want to, Give our guest a prompt and say, you got a doozy for us. I bet you have a catalog of doozies. Yeah. It can be funny. It can be scary. It could be you almost died, you know, whatever. But um, do you have one in particular that uh, you want to share with our audience? Because that, <laughs> that was the impetus for creating the podcast when we couldn't do yeah. the festival during COVID. Right. We started the podcast and we were trying to come up with an idea. And um, surf magazines have gone away. And as a kid, that's where I got all my great surf stories from and that doesn't exist anymore and so we just wanted to try to catalog these great stories for posterity so for future generations so you got a good one for us oh, i got a bunch but um <laughs> let me winnow it down to one or two i mean i i you know sean thompson who all of you know mm-hmm. right 1977 world champ uh, from south africa sean and i met in the water at Uluwatu. Mm. I was in Uluwatu because I was on my way to G-Land to shoot an ABC uh, American Sportsman show. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the, It was the first time that G-Land had ever been put on film. Wow. It had, there had been still shots of it, but there had never been video of it yeah. or film of it. 
And uh, we stopped in, in Bali before we made the trip around to the tip of Java. And Sean was out in the water, and I'm paddling out there, and I'm going, oh, that's Sean Thompson. He's the Barishnikov of surfing, man. Yeah. I, love, I love Sean. At the time, I thought Sean was the best surfer in the world. You know, his yeah. style. I loved everything about the way Sean surfed. Absolutely. I still do. Yeah. But <clears throat> he was, you know, his... I never get nervous. I mean, I'm working with Carol Burnett and people like that, and I'm not, like, nervous. Not at all. I'm not impressed. But Sean Thompson in the water, and I'm <laughs> paddling out to him, and I'm going, oh, man. He's, he, that's Sean sitting out there. There's only, like, 10 people in the water. This is 1980, <laughs> right. 81, yeah. you know, at Ulu. There's, like, 10 people at the point, right? Wow. And Sean's one of them, and I'm, as I'm paddling up from about 100 yards away, I recognized him. And I'm paddling toward him. I'm going, oh, what am I going to say? How am I going to do this? Uh, how am I going to approach him? I got so nervous. And I get about 30 yards away from him. And he turns and looks. He sees me paddling towards him. And he goes, Gregory Harrison. Man, I like your work. No, no way. <laughs> kidding. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't <laughs> oh believe it. Oh, my gosh. I paddled up to him and said, you're my favorite surfer in the world, man. And we started talking. I brought him back. Um, to to the Pertamina cottages where I was staying in Kuda, and uh, called my wife and I said, "Hey, Sean Thompson's going to come and move in with us in in, <laughs> in, Car in Carpinteria." My and new he best did. friend. His, he was trying to get out of South Africa because yeah, yeah. things yeah, yeah. were getting hairy in, in Durban where he lived. Sure. And then he had his, his sister Tracy and his brother Paul and his mother Mari, and and. <clears throat> They all moved from South Africa into my house in Carpinteria. Wow. <laughs> and lived there for three years. Oh, my Unreal. goodness. And, and Sean and I became best friends. And I ended up being wow. at his wedding in Durban a few years later in 87, right? The same year, 88, the year after we shot North Shore. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, we're still friends. I talk to him almost every day. And that all because of paddling up to him at Uluwatu. That was that was a that's a good story. That's amazing. That's not about surfing yeah. the wave, which of course was uh, amazing. It, yeah, it doesn't matter. But it was it was again, again it's, circles it's that overlap. Part of that friendship that we yeah, talked yeah. about earlier. That yeah. brotherhood. Yeah. The other one, the other story I should share is is when I it was nineteen sixty eight, the summer just before I got drafted. A guy, a friend of mine who passed away a couple of years ago, a really close friend I grew up with, one of the one of the Ben Weston surfers. Okay. Um, Rick Umfress was his name and, uh, from Catalina and, and he and I, Rick had come over, he was in the class above me. So he graduated in 67 and he had gotten a Helms bakery truck and, and converted it an old used Helms bakery truck and converted it into a surf mobile, right? Yeah. With a big mattress in the back. And, and so we would make trips. We went down to Mazatlan. We drove down. Holy cow! New Mexico, that's a trip. <laughs> across, the, across the Sonora Desert to to uh, Mazatlan, and we among you know we were there for a month, month and a half. Yeah, in the summer, and we went down to San Blas, and you know we got we got Mantingen Bay, you know where you got to drive all the way down and pick. Yet yeah, we would tra we would switch who was going to drive the car down to pick up the surfer. It was a mile long way. Yeah, you know when it was good, and. Uh, and then we were back in, in Mazatlan, and his board got stolen from under our car while we were sleeping one night. Oh. And we were like, we were like out at that, at, uh, what was it called? Lupe's? On the north end of Mazatlan. I think it was Lupe's. 
Um, or am I thinking maybe that's that's in Baja? There's so many Lupe's and yeah. <laughs> anyway, so his board got <clears throat> stolen, which I mean, yeah, you know, we didn't have money. Yeah, devastating. We were living on nothing, and uh, and so we were so bummed, and we stayed a few more days, and and then got back in the thing and drove all the way up the Sonora Desert, and we were thinking, okay, we'll cross over at Mexicali and head, you know, back to L.A. No, let's turn left. Let's go over to Baja. Let's go over to the coast. So we drove over all the way through Tijuana and back down through Rosarito. Yeah. And we got down to uh, like K-38. Mm-hmm. And the Mexican National Surf Competition was going on. Okay. <laughs> and so we, we, we go, wow, look at all these people. Look at all these cars. And there's, you know, there's, there's a couple hundred people on the point uh, watching. You know, and there's only four or five guys in the water. And so we go, well, let's park. You know, let's go check it out. We walk out there. And one of the guys surfing in the contest <laughs> was surfing Rick's board. Oh, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Rick was, I mean, I could see the steam coming out of his ears. And he was not a pacifist like me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so he waited till the heat was over. The guy's coming in. He's... You know, the guy had won the heat. Yeah. He's a good surfer, Mexican surfer. Yeah. And he's coming up the cliffs. And when he gets up top, Rick, come, Rick goes up to him and says, Hey, man, that's my board. You know? Oh, hey, no, 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 I'm playing less, you know? And, and, and he goes, That's my board. You stole my board. And the guy was going, No, 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 I don't steal your board, senor. No, no, I, I bought this from, from some, some, you name somebody, you know? Yeah. This, this argument goes back and forth for, for like, you know, 10 minutes. Yeah. And the other, all the other Mexican surfers are starting to come in tight oh, around, no. around him and Rick. And I'm kind of on the fringe of that. And they're all giving me the stink eye. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get killed. <laughs> I'm going to die. And Rick isn't going to back down. He's not the kind of guy who backs down. Yeah. Okay. Next thing I know is that Rick is taking off his, his uh, canvas by Caton shorts. You know, okay. canvas by yeah. Caton, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's taken off his canvas by Caton surf shorts. And, you know, he's got like, you know, his bun huggers or something on underneath him and handing them to the guy. And that's the deal that they had made. And he picks up his board and gets in the car. He goes, let's get the hell out of here right now. <laughs> and we wow. threw that board on, in the back of the, of the, of the uh, Helms Bakery truck and peeled out of there. <laughs> Didn't stop till he got to the they border. Before they thought twice about it. He had, because he, the guy had to, had to have his dignity. Yeah, set. sure, sure. So he yeah. had made a deal for these shorts, which were, I think you were telling us the other night about shorts. One of you was talking about shorts being very valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. When you go to like a third world country, yeah. you know, and they go, yeah. I don't have shorts like that. Yeah. You know, well, no, no, it wasn't you, it was Joe. Okay. Right? Tom, 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 yes, yeah, Tom, yeah, we were, yeah, he was. Yeah, I got a million that. pair of these shorts. Yeah. Well, Rick said, you know, it's a pair of shorts. I got my board back. Man. Yeah. And but then we had to get across the border as soon as possible. Oh, I bet. Before I they bet. before they thought again. Yeah. Oh, exactly. So that was that was pretty interesting that we because it was you know it was an eighteen hour trip through the desert. Yeah. Yeah. To, to get <laughs> to get from where the board was stolen to where this guy was riding it. That's amazing. Yeah. Classic. That's a doozy. Yeah, I wonder, I, what, I wonder what he rode in his next heat. 
Well, yeah, or, if he, or, or if he just body surfed in those shorts. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I was thinking Rick was going to be surfing in his bun huggers uh, on the next session. But you guys all yeah. hightailed it back home. Yeah, we hightailed it. That's cool. Water might have been cold, too. I suppose <laughs> you got around the wetsuit issue. Back then, we, we, we would, that was before uh, Trestles was open. So I, okay. had my, I had my car confiscated at Trestles. I oh, had to, really? I had to wait a week mm. and, uh, and then go in and beg for it back and yeah. pay a huge penalty and all that. I had parked it behind some bushes, you know. Okay. Fair that enough. Was, that, was, that was before it became, before Nixon had the Western White House there yeah. at Cotton's. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was all different. The whole surfing world was different. Then. And Killer Dana still existed. And yeah. I might let my car get confiscated for a week uh, to surf lowers by myself. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, I'm not saying I'm it wasn't good. worth it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, one of the things that's cool is all the different iterations that surfing has gone through. Um, just like that story and just like we talked about in the movie, the friendship aspect mm-hmm. is one of the things that's consistent throughout, mm-hmm. um, whether surfing is punk rock or whether it goes into this like corporate um, kind of a competition world or um, you have the, the soul surfer that's just doing it for the love of it across all those genres. Um, that friendship and that connection with another person is one of the things that is key and it. And it's lived through all the different iterations of surfing. And I feel like it probably will continue to, um, but man, Gregory, it's just been so nice to have you here, and uh, thank you so much for coming out. Thank and, you for having me. Yeah. Man. Uh, thank you, thank you for uh, you know uh, entertaining our fans, and uh, you've just been wonderful. It's been a real thank pleasure you. to have you. Thank you. It's yeah, a pleasure just, for me too. I'm just gonna say the same, uh, but also, if you don't mind, I'm gonna borrow your uh, line from your poem, "Writing the Arm of the Lord," and uh, probably refer to. Dancing uh, on the arm of the Lord. Dancing, yeah, exactly. So that's how I'm going to refer to sexy time with my wife from now on. <laughs> 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 okay, all uh, right. Thank you very much. If you don't mind, a little. No, I don't mind at okay. all, man. <laughs> all right. Hey, thanks a lot for all your all your generosity. Oh yeah, I appreciate it. You got it. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, Gregory. I'm, dude, I'm so glad that you brought up the story uh, from his time in the army. Oh, yeah. I didn't know what to do with that, really, because he told it during dinner the night before or a yeah. couple nights before. And it was like, uh, you know, I I was never going to forget that story. And I felt like that would stick with a lot of people. And it's also, um, it says a lot about people like me who are not, a, I'm not a person of, uh, of faith as you will, you know, I, yeah. I feel very strongly about my moral code and I, and that, you know, obviously I don't know that I could, would have had the fortitude that Gregory Harrison did to get through what he had to get through and, uh, you know, walk the walk. He's a guy who walks the walk. Yeah. Dude, I've retold the story like five times already to different okay. people. I'm like, you are never going to believe this. This is amazing. That's just defined his life. And then imagine yeah. like the, getting out of the army and being like at 22 or 24 or whatever he was, he was like, I'm going to be an actor. Yeah. Yeah. He already knew he was going to be an actor before that. This is going to be a piece of cake. But then he's like, <laughs> I'm just going to be an actor. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, so, you know, kind of, you know, it's not easy to do that. You actually have to be a pretty intelligent person to pull off what he's pulled off. And absolutely I'm not just pretty intelligent. You just, 
you know, all of the pieces came together. Uh, we're, we're lucky enough to witness this character that has turned into over time, like, a uh, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a bear character from big Wednesday. It's like, uh, yeah. it's, it's really, but, but bear was washed up or his Chandler's like got it all, all together. And, you know, it's like, what a wonderful, uh, way to spend a weekend with him. And, uh, you know, thanks for sharing some stories with us. Yeah, it was phenomenal. And like he was saying to us, I forget if, if it was at dinner or something, but he was saying like the average movie when they're filming, they shoot two or three pages of screenplay per day. And when he's doing the soap operas, like he's been in Falcon Crest, he's in General Hospital right now, um, they're doing 30 to 35 pages a day. Like I can't even, I don't even know if I could memorize that much dialogue. Yeah. I, I mean, they, yeah, you got to be pretty smart. He, he actually did say that you are a little bit more, um, you're given more freedom in the dialogue of the soap opera. Sure. Because how could they force you to memorize every word? It's not a Woody Allen script. It's not a David sure. Mamet play or anything. But the I, idea of getting this scene through, it's not Larry David curb your enthusiasm either. You know, you got to kind of stay on script. But yeah, that was pretty interesting. You know, there's a lot of things we didn't get on on the podcast with Gregory. Same with John Philbin's podcast. And, uh, you know, one thing we hope to do is reconnect with these guys down the road a little bit because it's just been a real joy. Absolutely. we were, I talked with both of them about, because uh, this was the 37-year anniversary of North Shore. Mm. And we talked, I said, well, I mean, we probably ought to have you back for 40. Like, yeah. That's a pretty <laughs> milestone number. Like, And yeah. they were both like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. That'd be great. It's such a fun movie. Before, one of the cool things uh, Gregory did before we kicked off the movie was he, he stood up by the stage and I personally am normally like, oh, shit, here we go. Filmmaker's going to get up for me. I didn't have that feeling with Gregory. I no. was like, oh, he's going to be fine. This is going to be good, whatever he's going to say. And he got up there and he's like, everybody, listen, you know the words to this movie. Yeah. <laughs> you feel free to talk us through and like, say, say the lines with us. He, say, he said the lines are more fun when you say them with us. Yeah, exactly. That, that was, was awesome. Great. I yeah. know. Uh, well, we were like a couple of Chris Farley's over here. Chris Farley show. Yeah. Um, yeah. Big, just, big fanboy moment. Big fanboy moment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you guys were so fantastic. Uh, let's thank our sponsors and get out of here. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, uh, we're so st uh, stoked to have surfing's evolution and preservation foundation, uh, sponsor of the podcast. And that is the endless summer license plate here in Florida. So next time you get a license plate, Make sure you choose that one because the money that you spend on it, which is nominal, I think it's like 15 or 20 bucks, okay. but it goes and supports all of these great nonprofits around Florida that uh, help preserve and uh, help preserve surfing's culture. They help with the evolution of surfing's culture and they protect the ocean and surf spots. I'm, so, I'm going to do it next time I have to renew my plate coming, yeah. up, coming up in May. Yep, I am too. And then, of course, Monster Energy, the presenting sponsor of the film festival, uh, along with support from Re Yeti, Rourke, Globe, uh, Josh Wagner, the lawyer dude, Atlantic Center for the Arts, Sunbum, and Anson Stoner. Couldn't do it without those guys, so please support those folks, and, uh, and thank you for supporting the festival. Yeah, it's been a good podcast. Thanks, John. Cheers.